The birthday celebration, however, cradles the deepest of religious feelings. Rosh Hashanah celebrates the absolute pure blessing of life and its appreciation in a world of fragility. There is nothing we did to merit that life should come from the void, nor that the universe should have come into being at all. The philosopher Friedrich Schleiermacher claimed that this acknowledgement alone produces a unique state of feeling consciousness. The Germans loved hyphenated words. This unique state of feeling consciousness in us is the foundation, he said, of all true religion. And I agree. As we pray with that feeling, as we prayed, God is El Rachum, the womb God, the compassion God, the motherly compassion God, a parental love that wants to protect you and love you and help you to become the best person, the best version of yourself. As that God birthed it all, and each one of our life forces. And as God is El Chanun, the source of grace, the source of giving beyond consideration of merit, we delve into profound Torah portions of those who are given the gift of experiencing life and how they behave and operate with that gift in the Torah portion and in the Haftarah. How does a human being experience this unique feeling of wonder and love of the pure blessing of life if we're not deserving, if we didn't get here by merit? It's not something we can talk another into through logic or reason. So the rabbis chose for us on Rosh Hashanah the stories that we heard read so beautifully of Sarah and Hannah. Two women long barren and then given the blessing of pregnancy and birthing themselves. Can their joy, can their wonder, can their identification with God move our hearts to the spirit of this day so that we can summon that feeling? When we call to God as El Rachum and El Hanun, can we, like Eli the priest in verse 10, be moved by Hannah's prayer? this primordial calling upon God, so that we too see her chen, grace, in our eyes. On one level, the liturgical selections are joyful, but as we know in our tradition, the light and the dark are always intermixed, and the Torah reading does go dark. In chapter 16 of Breshit, the slave woman Hagar seems to use the only privilege granted her, that of her pregnancy with Abraham's first child to denigrate the childless Sarah and the power dynamic of the household. And Sarah retaliated by using the privilege granted her as mistress of the household to make Hagar suffer terribly. And just when you think the matter is over, with Sarah on top, the karmic cycle goes back the other way. God brings comfort to Hagar, but Sarah's childlessness makes her vulnerable to assault in Egypt. She goes from privileged mistress to a concubine herself. And now in today's selection that we read, her privilege is doubly restored as mistress of the home and now mother of Isaac. Because when all had been stripped away, 
God spoke to the king of Egypt. But now, with her privilege restored, she uses it to demand Hagar and Ishmael be expelled. The myriad ways social privilege plays into the abuse of those who lack that privilege has come to light in new ways over this past year. There is an, even a new word in our vocabulary for such a person. Not entirely comfortable with it, but it's in the language in the lexicon now. A Karen. A Karen is a term used to describe the stereotype of, stereotype of a middle-class white woman who exhibits behaviors that stem from privilege. She's the kind of person who demands to speak to the manager in order to belittle service industry workers when she doesn't get her way. She's the kind of person who threatens to call the police when a person of color asks her to comply with the law by leashing her dog. Small actions like asking to speak to the manager seem harmless enough. I mean, who isn't entitled to do that? And who wouldn't be gently dismissed by the police if they're calling just to complain about the rudeness of a neighbor? But as we see all around us today, not all members of our society are equally entitled, as the Torah has so often reminded us. Reporting to the manager that an employee was unconscionably rude is a way to get them fired in a system ruled by class, as all systems seem to be. And the threat of asking for the manager is a way to control using that inequality. And the threat of calling the police is a method of control in a country where the legacy of lynchings was the justification often that a white woman had been offended by a person of color, or very commonly, when white men lied about that happening in order to justify their murder. Threatening when a Karen threatens to blow that whistle, they know the consequences could affect the life and livelihood of another. Sarah exhibits some of these behaviors in these readings, so they jumped out this year. She has complained to the manager that Hagar has demeaned her in chapter 16, and that causes Hagar's first life-threatening exile. Thank God for God, who comes to her aid. Now in chapter 21, Sarah has done it again. Garesh ha'amah hazot. ki lo yirash ben ha'amah hazot im im yitzchak. Cast out that slave woman and her son, for the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. She can't even use Hagar or Ishmael's name. She wants the slave woman discipline, the slave woman's son to be fired, to be exiled regardless of the effects on them, and this time for good, so that the inheritance of privilege for her son, he gets a name, is assured. Some scholars point out, sadly, that Karen behavior really stems from a history of powerlessness of women. And sometimes pointing it out, pointing them out can be another way to blame them inappropriately. After all, with so little power themselves in a male-controlled world, women have had almost no moves to make to direct events in their lives at all. Reporting being offended, or using firstborn male heirs are the only currencies available to women in a world of power controlled and distributed by men. And to add insult to that injury, women are then themselves blamed and demeaned for using the limited tools they have to gain any power at all. 
And in many cases, as I said, of the lynching in this country, women are blamed for blowing the whistle of damsel in distress and causing it all, when our historians have uncovered that so often they were pressured to lie by men after the fact, justify the men's baseless murders of hate. None of this alleviates the sadness of watching the two women harm each other when they could be supporting each other. As Amos Oz famously argued about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, two sides who perceive of themselves as natural enemies and turn on each other could just as easily see themselves as natural allies if they could see how they are essentially two victims of the same oppressive power structure. In the Middle East case, of European greed and racism that led to colonialism and the Holocaust. But instead, they see in each other a rival. The coldness of the women of Sara and Hagar of, and Penina Tahana cuts through the narrative and into our hearts like a shofar blast. When I hear the new term Karen, I can't help me graphically think of it, that there's some Hebrew in it. And I think, Maybe kar, cold, and then this feminine plural ending, an or en, kar lahen. These women are being cold to each other. The experience of being like God, of giving life, does not lead to their being more compassionate to one another. A rechem, a womb, does not lead to rachum, compassion for one another. And in the Haftarah narrative, Elkanah's wife, Penina, torments Hannah ba'avor, on account of, a pun for the word pregnancy, rachma, her womb. For Sarah, neither the gift of life nor the gift of being put in Hagar's place through suddenly being reduced to the concubine herself leads to compassion. The pandemic has put so much pressure on families, <clears throat> and if we're being honest, on women in particular. And I've been struck that this has produced a coldness, a lack of compassion, too often for seeing the experience through another's eyes. When I follow some of the conversations in the media, they read to me like the pattern of the Torah narrative. Companies that have made special allowances so that employees working from home who have children in the home have fewer work responsibilities, elicit complaints of unfairness from employees without, for, um, without children in the home. In terms of schooling, if you post somewhere, or you write an article and publish it in the New York Times that you have decided to keep your child home, people post that it might be, must be nice to be such a person of privilege that you get to make that choice when people who lack privilege need the school so they can go to work. But if you say that you've decided to send your kids to in-person school, then you're accused of being a person of privilege who will put their child at risk so you can work better without being disturbed by them from your fancy corporate job at home. No one seems to want to know anything about the other's experience, and no one seems to ask. They don't seem to want to try. It's just coldness without compassion. The dark side of the narrative before us is a lack of compassion in trying to see what other people are going through. It's making assumptions. And people reach for the Karen whistle with little prompting, even when they have experienced the gift of life. I've been struck by the strategy employed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Aleha Shalom, as the architect of the legal rights for women 
in the 1970s in arguing that the 14th Amendment's protections applied not just to racial and ethnic minorities, but to gender as well. In order to get rights for women, she realized that you will never get male judges to be sympathetic to the limitations of women's privilege. Her strategy was to choose male plaintiffs and establish how they'd been discriminated against because they were a man. And as she wrote, it wasn't easy to find those cases. They are somewhat obscure. She had to focus on these social security cases where rarely, but in certain cases, a widower would be denied his wife's death benefit. She herself lost her job as a typist by getting pregnant. She only saved her teaching job by wearing her mother-in-law's clothes to hide her second pregnancy. When the justice agree justices agreed with her because she had presented it as a limitation on men's power, she used those decisions as precedents for the right to be free from discrimination by birth sex. Maybe this is why the rabbis give us the men's narrative tomorrow. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we are shown a tale of two men suddenly faced with losing it all, their power, their promise, the gift of life. Scrutinize that, you men, she's telling us. So interestingly, the very issue of chen, of grace, is that it's not based on merit. It's just based on a loving, equal fairness. In his recent book, Michael Sandel argues that we have inherited a society that is claiming that people's successes and achievements is not based on privilege, but on merit. We've convinced each other, ourselves that we live in a meritocracy and that we are helping lift up people to achieve their successes. He points out, as I often have from the Bhima, that suspiciously, we often tell those stories from the point of view and biographies of those who have succeeded rather than those who have been shut out. And in a very interesting cry, which I'm still interested in interpreting, he suggests, for example, that maybe at our most elite universities, admissions should be granted perhaps with some standards of some sort through a lottery to acknowledge, is it really the merit that got people to this level? Or was it the privileges that they inherited, the preservation of those privileges for the next generation at the exclusion of the children of others? I've often been struck by a brief story that occurs in Bava Batra B, 60B, the story of Rabbi Yanai. To me, it's a story of privilege straight from the Talmud, and it's very brief. There once was a man who had a tree leaning from his private property into the public domain. And the public, we don't know who this public is. They wanted it cut down. He came before Rabbi Yanai to judge the case. Rabbi Yanai turned to him and said, after some silence, Come back tomorrow. At night, Rabbi Yanai sent for a worker and had that person cut down a tree that belonged to himself. 
The next day, the same man came before Rabbi Yanai, who said to him, please go and cut down your tree. It's in violation of policy. The man said to him, but master, you also have a tree that leans into the public domain. And Rabbi Yanai said to him, go and see. If my tree is still standing, you don't have to cut yours down. But if it's not, we will obey the rule equally. The Talmud asks from this story of the Mishnah, what just happened? And it answers, at first Rabbi Yanai held the view that he just thought that the public loved him and they loved his tree. They must love the shade that it produced. But in those moments of silence, he realized they were only respecting his privilege, the respect that he had in the community, and said they wouldn't tell him the real reasons and the background of the unfairness. And so it comes to teach us that we should focus on making sure that we are all governed by the same levels before we send the authorities to discipline or to enforce. The pandemic has given us a grace, if we accept it, to put ourselves in other shoes. How much are others strained to the breaking point? If one has privilege, it doesn't mean they are not suffering. But don't we have the time now to think about, as we heard in the Shofar Reflections, how people are suffering unequally? And can we put ourselves in a place of another instead of judging them? Can we find a way to let the pandemic show us how we need to let its messages come forth? I'm going to share one brief story and close with a, a personal reflection. It's a difficult story. It's not going to be easy to hear. I'm still processing it. Someone I know in California shared to me an experience they've had, and they allowed me to share it with you. It points out the difficulty of where we're at. They were seeking to return to the job market, and they applied for a job. It was a job governed by the rules of fairness that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and others have made possible. They were given a piece of paper before the interview, and it said, in this job, we will not discriminate by race or by gender. She was then given another piece of paper that said, our company is now committed to making sure that it reflects the diversity of the population around us. And so we are going to focus on the hiring of employees as policy, a reflected diversity that we now lack. I think that that is the Talmudic conflict in some ways that we're in. We have some people who say, that doesn't make sense. That's unfair. You can't tell someone they're not being discriminated against. And he did not get the job. And a person of color did. I expressed to him 
my sympathies. And I asked him how he felt. And he said, at first, I felt like it was really unfair. And I was confused and I was disappointed. And then he said, it made me reflect on my life, however. How did I get my first job? How did I get my degree? How did I get my recommendations? How did I get my mentoring? They said that this Rosh Hashanah, they are going to be reflecting. Maybe it wasn't an equal playing field that got them to this point. Maybe their tree has been growing into the public domain and people have been praising it, while others have not. And he said to me, on this Rosh Hashanah, I'm going to focus and reflect on the inequalities of privilege. And I'm going to pray for a world in which they don't exist. And I want to be a part of that happening. We are so tuned right now, as you can see that I am, into hearing the voices of people of color and people who are not of people of color, um, white people, privileged people, who also are suffering. I close with what happened to me when I got to witness the experience of my wife giving birth. It was very hard labor. And we've been in the hospital over Thanksgiving for, it seems like forever, about 48 hours. It seemed like there was no staff in the hospital because of Thanksgiving, and it was freezing cold. The room, and and the, no one would take my call to turn up the heat. And Lynn was suffering and suffering and suffering, and our doula was staying and staying and staying. We finally sent her home so that she could have some Thanksgiving. And we suffered together for a very, very long time until Mayrav was born. I hadn't eaten, and I tried to be with her the whole time. I mean, I mean, emotionally failing her constantly. I'm not great at giving those bugs. Um, she, she actually would send me away sometimes saying, you, you clearly don't know how to rub my back. Um, Try not to take it personally. And I started wandering the hallways of this empty hospital. And something very strange happened to me. I was staring at the only poster on this long wall. And it was a poster of a mother. And like happens rarely in life, and I'll never forget it, probably from days of lack of sleep and not proper eating and stress, I kept seeing my mother in the poster. It was a poster of my mother holding a baby and smiling. And I kept wiping away my eyes and looking again, and it was a person of color. And then I'd wipe my eyes away, and then I'm like, no, 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 it's someone who's Asian. And then I'd wipe my eyes away again, and it would be someone who was Latina. And I didn't know what was happening. And then it was my mother's face again. I'm hoping in this time, as we are called, pardon me, to see the gift of life that comes without merit and doesn't deserve to be judged by privilege, celebrated 
and made a part of our society. The story of Hannah seems to lack, by contrast, all coldness, the grace of gift without merit, even in response to Penina's abuse. Rather than one being, being right means another has to be wrong, she goes from appreciating the miracle of life to wanting all to be raised up as she is. Far from accepting the position of rivalry offered, she gives up her child to serve in the temple for the better of all. In the first and last line of Hannah's prayer, we find the actual Hebrew word, karen, inflected to karen. Not the word for coldness, but karen is the word for triumph. She says in the first and last words, the sentences of her prayer, just as I have been lifted up with my triumph, so shall the future bring triumph and God's blessing to all. Shana Tovah.